welcome to Side Alpha Leadership, a podcast where leaders can share their experiences and discuss what leadership means to them. I'm your host, David Polikoff. Hello and welcome to this month's Side Alpha Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, David Polikoff. I'm pleased to have uh, Anthony Castros on the line with me uh, over on the West Coast. So without uh, me rambling on, uh, Anthony, welcome to the show. And uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Thank you, brother. Uh, it's great to be on your show. It's uh, I, First of all, I love the name of your show, uh, Side A Leadership. You know, it's it's great because uh, anybody that knows me knows I love ICS. I love using it on fires and uh, leading from the front is what it's all about. That's my philosophy. Um, you know, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about me. I want to talk about what uh, I think will benefit your listeners. I will tell everybody I'm happily retired after 33 years or 32 years in the fire service. Was a battalion chief my last 14 almost years in the field and had a great time. And I'm blessed to uh, be doing a lot of teaching and training still. Um, with our books and videos that we have out through fire engineering. And uh, we have a great team of instructors and we're traveling the country and doing a lot of great stuff. So with that, let's talk about good stuff. Absolutely. So a little bit of background. I, I had the pleasure of, actually, I, I knew about you, obviously, because you've written a couple of books um, that I've, I've glanced through. And uh, it's about making the, uh, the assessment center. And uh, this is the season, uh, especially on the East Coast, there's lots of uh, lieutenants and captains tests that are coming up now. And your book is one of the ones that I point the people to, to, to read through it. So you get an, an overview of what an assessment center is and, and, and how to do better. Um, so and, and I got the chance to actually meet you in person last year at uh, Fire Engineering through our mutual friend, Frank Ritchie. Um, you were up for uh, Instructor of the Year, actually, at FDIC. And uh, so uh, very belated congratulations on that. I know we congratulated you that, that night when we went out drinking and everything. Um, and you do run a very successful training program. Um, I'll let you give a plug on that later on in the show so people can uh, actually uh, go to your website and, and take a look at the things that you have to offer. Um, so today, like we do with, with all the podcast shows, we want to talk about leadership, and uh, you and I chatted a little bit, and uh, you wanted to talk about succession planning and, and setting the fire service up for the next generation. So um, I'm going to cut myself off from Ram, and I'm going to turn it over to you and, and uh, tell me what that looks like to you and, and uh, how you go to achieve that and to help other organizations achieve that. Thanks, brother. Um, it's something I'm passionate about, succession planning, building future leaders, helping future officers develop and promote, uh, seeing them be successful in their tenure. Uh, it's important, and, I, and I'll start with why I love it so much and why it's important to me. I was blessed to be uh, raised by kind of the almost like a generation ahead of me. When I was born, my dad was 52 years old, and my brothers were 18 and 15, and they were already starting their fire service careers as volunteers. So by the time I'm five years old, I'm hanging out at the firehouse, and I have all these iconic mentors in my life. My dad, my uncles, my cousins. I had a cousin who was a commander of the Thunderbirds when I was, like, six years old. I had um, these amazing uncles, and, and all of my brothers and their friends were a lot older than me. So it's not like I had siblings in my age. I was so much younger than everybody in my family. Um, my dad joked around, you know, he said I was an Uzo baby because, you know, we talk about martini babies. That's for people that don't know. That means that your parents were drinking a martini and they had got a little, got a, a little, uh, you know, and they all of a sudden, you know, they made a baby. And uh, that's what, that's what, for the Greeks being a full, full-blooded Greek, we call it, we call it an Uzo baby. 
So basically, uh, my parents had me late in the game, and I had all these amazing mentors and people to look up to. And that gave me a passion to pass it on. I, I just knew and saw how I was surrounded by these iconic people my whole life um, and their friends and, uh, and family members and, I, and, and instructors. And as I started my fire service career, you know, I grew up in the fire department, in the firehouse in Carmel, California. So it's a one station volunteer department, it's one square mile. And I literally grew up in that station, in that firehouse. And it was an amazing experience. So by the time I started actually wearing turnouts and going on calls as a, as a young volunteer in the 80s, um, I, I found myself only after a few years starting to mentor and bring up the, the next crop of volunteers. And then as I started my fire service career full time, um, I did the same thing and, and started to bring up people and I was had a passion for it. And before you knew it, I had a um, like a self-published assessment center book and then it got published by uh, Fire Engineering in uh, 2006 was the first edition. And I was very fortunate, blessed to have uh, the late, great Alan Brunacini uh, write the forward to that um, because I had befriended him because I wanted him to be a mentor. And so um, you blink and all of a sudden in 2018, we have our second edition out and we were fortunate to have a ton of great friends uh, and fellow instructors and authors contribute to the second edition of Mastering the Fire Services Assessment Center by Fire Engineering. And so you mentioned Frank Ritchie and, and there's so many others um, who are in that second edition who, who lended a section, I called it Wisdom from the Masters. What I wanted to do was, was take a lot of friends and, and uh, mentors along the, along the way that I had made um, and befriended through fire engineering, through FDIC and teaching and said, hey, would you, would you uh, contribute maybe a page or two of just wisdom about your field of expertise or your passion about the job? So, you know, again, Alan Bernicini contributed, um, Billy Goldfeder. Um, I, the list goes on and on and on. I could, I could go on all day. We about 22 uh, luminaries from the fire service who were in there, um, all good friends. And Paul Combs did the uh, artwork for the cover. And there's something that we're all passionate about, and that's succession planning and, and developing leaders. Um, and what's changed in the fire service from when I was coming up is I, when I was coming up, there was no, there was no leadership. There was no online, obviously. There was no uh, nothing like we're doing today, a podcast. Um, you couldn't just go online and look at YouTube and stuff. And there was no internet connectivity or anything. And But also in the firehouse, it was different. In the firehouse, you just would listen to stories. They, 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 you know, you wouldn't often find a lot of officers that would take you by the arm and say, hey, kid, I want to mentor you. Or there weren't formalized programs like that. Um, there were no cell phones, so you couldn't sit there and look at videos or download stuff. Um, so you had to rely on your own grit and your own willingness to, to engage these older members who, you know, when you're coming up, some of them were kind of scary, you know. These were people who had come out of Vietnam. These were people who were contractors and tradesmen. Uh, and a lot of these men and women back then um, that came up in the 60s, 70s, 80s didn't think about mentoring. They just did the job, and they weren't worried about mentoring. They just figured it out, and they figured you would figure it out. However, if you approach them right and you ask them to help you, they would be there in a heartbeat. And... I love that, and so I wanted to give that back, and that's kind of what spurred this whole passion for officer development, command and tactical training, and assessment center preparation, and, and we developed, when I was in the uh, training division at my department for two years as a captain, 
Um, we did task books and officer academies and a lot of succession planning systems to really formalize it because we had such a new, <clears throat> excuse me, young fire department of about 40 stations. We just merged and there was a lot of new folks coming in. There was two ways of doing everything on a good day. In most days, there was 20 ways of doing things. And we wanted to, we had to write SOGs for this new 40 station metropolitan department in California. We had all risks. So we had wildland, we had wildland urban interface, we had river rescues, we had hazmat, we had, we were part of a national USAR team, and we had a, a busy urban fire department. And so we had to develop SOGs from the ground up, task books, officer and engineer academies, refiner fire academy. We developed truck company task books for truck members because the influx of people coming in combined with the new department combined with the outflow of experience we had to formalize these systems and that's where this this huge body of knowledge and experience um, that i was exposed to became an amazing buffet if you will of opportunities to really create my own curriculum and, and take what the best stuff that worked and, and modify it for the next generation and and so here we are today um, so I'm excited to talk about, about that and get into the weeds a little bit on whatever you want to, wherever you want to go with that stuff. Yeah, that's all fantastic stuff. Now <clears throat> I had a show a few months back. I talked to, um, um, one of my friends, uh, works in one of the Metro, uh, Washington Metro departments. We talked about mentors and you had mentioned mentors and, and like you, I, I came into the fire service, uh, I think four years old. Uh, my dad was in the, uh, in the volunteer department. He was a career yeah. firefighter in, in Washington, DC. Um, yeah. so I, I vaguely remember being drug around the firehouse by the firehouse dog. Um, and then, you know, we fast forward, and, and by the time I was fortunate, because by the time I was in, in seventh grade, I knew what I wanted to do for a career. So I uh, joined the, uh, the volunteer juniors program when I was 12, and then by the time I turned 16, I became a senior member. And uh, I, I, too, was, was surrounded by these older career firefighters. It's a combination system that were, you know, Vietnam-era um you know, guys that were in Vietnam, that, again, they were tradesmen, kind of rough around the edges, a little gruff, um, and they were kind of scary to approach. But uh, what I did find out is it, it, the funny thing is, is if I was doing something wrong, uh, they would come up and go, that's not how you do it, boy. Let me show you how you do it, you know. Right, and right. and, they, and they, they taught you how to wash a fire engine. They taught you how to mop a floor, clean a toilet. Um, right, I think right. we, we, we kind of steer away from that nowadays. So when we talk about mentors – how would one go about, first of all, being a mentor? And we talked about it, and it can't, it's not an organic, it's an organic thing. It just kind of happens. But uh, as a senior firefighter or, or a, line, a company officer, how would you key on on somebody and try to take them under your wing? What do you look for to look for somebody that, you know what, that'd be a good fit? I kind of want to guide this guy. He's got some potential. So what would you look at and what would you pass on to somebody that would be listening to this of how they can be a mentor or how to be mentored? Great question. I appreciate it. <clears throat> you know, first of all, realize that, that the, the kids coming in today, they want to learn. They want to be successful. But oftentimes they're afraid to ask. Um, and I think a part of it's a derivative of the electronics of today. You know, everyone's on their phones, down, heads down texting, as Frank Ritchie would say. And I think that they're a little intimidated to come into this, this fire department, whether it's one station or 100 stations. You're coming into a building 
in a workplace that's full of people who trust each other, who've built up a rapport. And for, for the millennials coming in, I'm not trying to stereotype, but a lot of these folks that I've seen, this is my own experience. This isn't from a book or some theory. I saw a lot of kids coming in that didn't have social skills, and they would come in with their heads down texting, and they were kind of afraid to engage. So I just reach out to them and say, hey, how can I help you? I'm here for you if you have any questions, you know, and they would, they would look at me like, oh, wow, okay, uh, sure, you know. And so you kind of have to you kind of have to coax it out of them at first. I remember one time I was uh, talking to a, a, a probie, and uh, we were at the – we were uh, – washing dishes and I, I was a battalion chief and you know I didn't have to wash the dishes um, in fact you know when I was coming up the probies washed the dishes period however you know we've, we've evolved we've changed and we want to accept people in so I was washing the dishes with alongside this probie and I said to him look I said I said I said the crew's going to tell you you don't have to wash the dishes because you're on the medic unit you're on the ambulance you're going to be busy and running calls all night so they're going to be nice and say you don't have to do the dishes and that's great but you should still do the dishes. If you're in quarters, don't just sit around and, you know, um, you know, don't just, just hang out here and, uh, um, and, and take them up on their offer to not do dishes. you got to jump in and do dishes. And he goes, wow, nobody ever tells us this stuff. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, that's why I'm telling you I want you to be successful. It's not that they're testing you. It's not that, that, that they if, that if you don't do dishes, they say, say to you, oh, just relax. You know, you don't have to do dishes. It's okay. Um, you're on the medic tonight. You're not, they're not going to look down on you if you don't, if you, if you take them up on it. But if you do the dishes, you're, you're making a statement saying, you know what? I want to earn my stripes. I want to I wanna come in here and, and learn the traditions and work my butt off and realize that I own the sink. And I forgot who it was. I think it was Frank Ritchie that told me about, you know, the I own the sink philosophy, which means it's a probie. You own the kitchen sink. You know, you got to start there. And when you start there with that kind of attitude, um, it's pretty remarkable how the crews will take to you and the crews will uh, want to invest in you because they see as a new probie you're coming up and they want to they want to invest in a, in a probie who's eager, who's hardworking, who's humble and who's got their mouth closed and their eyes and ears open. Um, but it's great to ask questions. And that's the thing is, you know, I've heard it said a thousand times by crews, well, if they want to know, they can ask kind of thing. And so you have to show as an up-and-comer, you have to show that initiative. As an officer, you have to create the environment. On the other side, as a mentor, you have to show a desire to help, and you have to create a safe environment. So, for example... I was uh, sitting at the kitchen table at that same station, and there's 10 of us, 10 of us in the firehouse having dinner. And I looked at uh, the, the two probies, and they're just, again, sitting down, heads, heads down texting. And I looked at the probies, and I looked at them, and I looked at the captains, and everyone was just kind of, you know, the, the senior folks were just kind of bantering and talking after dinner, <clears throat> and the probies were just kind of sitting there with their heads down, not really engaging. And I, and I looked at the captains, and I said, hey, captain, it was an engine and truck house. I said, why don't you... Uh, why don't you tell us, uh, you know, what you think, what you and your crew think that, that these new probies, these new colleagues of ours should know at this stage of their career? What wisdom or words of advice do you have for them, um, you know, as we're sitting here after dinner, you think they should know and wish that you knew at, their st at this stage of your career? And, man, uh, it was beautiful. For the next probably 45 minutes, 
the captain started and it went all the way down to the engineers, through the senior firefighters, through the junior firefighters, and they all were given these awesome pearls of wisdom to these firefighters, these probies, and it was magical. It was wonderful to watch. And and at the end they said, what do you have to add, Chief? And I just listened and I said, do everything they said. I second what they said. I got nothing to add. And it was beautiful. And, and the probies, man, they were licking it up with a biscuit, man. They were licking it up with a spoon. It was awesome. They were into it. And, and we created this culture in our battalion. And I think the department where I came from has a great culture of mentoring and, and bringing other people up. And so it, it doesn't just happen by accident. You have to make effort, whether you're coming up and want to learn or you're, a, or you're a mentor, a senior member, or an officer. You have to create those opportunities and tell people, I'm here for you. I want to help you and make time to do that. The uh, it's it's funny because I love having kitchen table talks. You know, I, I'm assigned in in my battalion. I'm I'm assigned to, into a station uh, as an engine, an ambulance, and a medic unit. And uh, you know, I like to sit down at the kitchen table and just kind of BS with the guys. I think that's where you really um, get this this organic flow of information. Uh, you mentioned about the millennials, and and we usually touch on that on almost every podcast. And and I try to tell people before they try to go down this rabbit hole of stereotyping millennials. These are some of the smartest people that are coming out of the training academy. And um, as an older member, you can't look at them and say, well, you know, this generation today. And I kind of laugh. I said, you know what? The guy said the same thing about me back in the early 80s when I was in the fire department. You know, when I was working in, in the career department, they were looking at me like, oh, this generation today. And I guarantee their parents were saying the same thing. So the thing about millennials now, you had touched on it about the being the socially awkward um, everything in the world that they want is in the palm of their hands. Literally, they can just pull out their little computer that makes phone calls and, and is also a, a calculator, and they can find anything in the world that they want to find. Um, the trick is to get their heads out of the phone. Um, I, I've got two uh, smaller kids. They're not millennials. They're the Generation Y or whatever they are. They're, they're in their uh, early teens. Um, and that's that, that whole making eye contact and, and that's socially awkward because they'd rather make this contact with the little screen in their hand as opposed to the face that's in front of them. I find that difficult um, to try to break these these uh, recruits uh, out of out of that to get away from the phone and let's let's have this conversation you know people to people and the kitchen table I think is the best place I call it the great equalizer because everybody has a voice and uh, there's no dumb question everybody should be asking questions so I, I like the fact that you had talked about you know just kind of steering that conversation hopefully that captain would have picked up and said you know what from here on out this is the direction that we should go after dinner instead of just all breaking into our silos we all kind of get together and and we we talk together like hey these are some things that you need to learn i wish i knew this back when i was uh your your uh at, at your time in the fire service now one of the other things that uh that i want to touch on real quick is the i got mine mentality and this leads back to the succession planning where you get people that work their way through the ranks and they become you know the the technicians the lieutenants the captains and they don't want to pass that information on because it's the whole i got mine and i'm not going to make you good because you might make me look bad type of thing how do we get away from that poison pill I love, I love that you called it a poison pill. That's exactly what it is. Um, I heard it said once of a, of a well-respected battalion chief in my department. It said, oh, he's a good battalion chief. He's just not much of a mentor. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> how, how could you have somebody be a good officer 
but then the next breath say, well, he's not that good of a mentor, though. But he's a good officer. Well, what did the heck? In today's day and age, that should be like 51% of your job is mentoring. And it's just counterintuitive to me. So the I got mine, you get yours thing you had talked about. It is the old generation, maybe a little bit attitude, but we have to realize that as officers, our job is to be replaced, is to prepare people to replace us. And unfortunately, I think the biggest detriment to the fire service is one of our greatest strengths also, and that is that we're very task-oriented. So we think about the job in front of us and getting the job done in front of us, and we don't think about mentoring somebody else to do that job someday. We don't think about softer skills, and you, and you see us struggle with things like workplace conflict, work environment issues, and because we're focused on checking the rig and running fires and, and how to do a fire attack and all that stuff, we don't think about developing other people, uh, let alone how to lead them properly. So I see a new officers who are ill-equipped to do their own job that they are now in, let alone mentor somebody else coming behind them. For example, a lot of new battalion chiefs may not have been captains that long. A lot of new captains may not have been on many fires as a firefighter. And now all of a sudden they're charged with, with leading a crew or a whole battalion when they didn't have a lot of experience to begin with heading into the new job. And so the last thing they're thinking about is helping somebody else because they're just trying to survive. And I see that especially in the battalion chief ranks around the country is because battalion chiefs, unlike a company officer, when you're, when you're on a crew, you can watch your company officer do his or her job and you can see firsthand how that job works and what it takes. But once you go from company to chief officer, you didn't have that benefit. A lot of people don't even know what the battalion chiefs do other than maybe deliver the mail. Very few battalion chiefs are training with their crews. Very few are developing new officers. Um, and it's amazing. I, I could, one of the things I was surprised by in my 13 plus years as a battalion chief, I would share my expectations with every single member of the battalion that would come in. We get a new member of the battalion and I would share expectations. And every single one of them said, wow, chief, you're the first battalion chief to ever share your expectations with me and sit me down so we could have a talk. Thank you. And I was just blown away by that. So it's a, it's a mental paradigm shift that the entire fire service needs to make, I think. That's where I'm going with it. Yeah, I did the same thing when uh, <clears throat> when I got promoted to battalion to the battalion chief's position. I was in what they called a relief spot. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a blessing and a curse because the relief spot, I only worked Tuesday and Friday. I worked Tuesday 24 hours, Friday 24 hours, and I was off uh, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, and then went back to Tuesday, Friday. It was awesome for shift-wise with young kids. I could plan my schedule. My wife's a nurse, so we could, you know, she could do her thing. But after a while, it got to the point where, yeah, I'm in charge of just a, a few people, but it's not really my shift. It was almost like I felt like a substitute teacher mentality. So I had the, the opportunity arose. I took over a shift. Uh, somebody went up to the office. So I took over their shift. And, and uh, one of the first things I did is, is I sat down at home, put my laptop uh, on my lap, and I just kind of started scrolling out what my expectations were of my officers and what my expectations are of my officers and how I want them to treat and lead their people. 
and um, it ended up being about three pages, and I think the last bullet point was, and whatever else pops up, we'll talk about. Um, and every single officer gets a copy of that. And I, I don't want to say I'm the only one that does that. I, I would hope that others do that, uh, at least they, so they have it in, in hard form, so they can always go back and take a look at it. I like training with the guys uh, when they do stuff. I like to go out. If I'm not actually got my hands on, I'm standing there. I'm watching, seeing what they're doing. Um, I ask questions. So I think that uh, that plays a big part of kind of of lowering the curtain or, or lowering that wall so the guys feel a little more comfortable coming to you to ask questions. And, and I, I love it when they ask questions because it gives me a chance to, you know, maybe think, do some critical thinking. And if I don't know the answer, I'm very honest with them. And I said, I don't know. I'll go find out and I'll, and I'll, I'll get the answer back to you. Um, but this, that whole, I got my mentality, I never bought into that. And I want the guys and gals that are coming up through the ranks, if, if uh, I want them to be better, I want them to have a better fire service as, as they move forward. Um, we talked to, you talked a little bit about company officers and, and uh, you know, the, the time that they spend in each rank. I was fortunate I spent a lot of time in each rank before I went to the next rank. Um, so I felt comfortable as I went in, but you're never 100%. You always have questions. Um I want to talk a little bit about officer training and, and how you put your program together and, and what is some of the key points that you are giving your officers. Everybody can run a fire call. Everybody can put their gear on and they can go down the road. But it's the, like you said, the soft skills, the admin stuff, the, uh, the people skills, the uh, conflict resolution. How do you help uh, newer officers that are coming in to tackle those problems? And what do you give them resources-wise that they can go to, to find answers if they have them? Great question, brother. Um, I love, like everybody, I love hands-on training, right? Every firefighter loves hands-on training. So what I try and do is, is create hands-on training exercises for every aspect of the fire officer's experience. And I've broken, in my books and in my training, I've broken the officer skill set into three dimensions. And this is the same for assessment centers. This is what you're going to be evaluated on in an assessment center, whether it be for company or chief officer. And the three dimensions are leadership, management, and emergency operations, right? So leadership is the people part, that's conflict resolution, that's listening, that's, that's having a counseling session, setting clear expectations, you know, human motivation, internal motivation, how to, how to build a team and all that. The management element is about budgets and time management and resource management potentially on an incident project management and all that kind of stuff and then emergency operations is the third dimension that's where it all comes together right so now we have we're leading troops into battle but we're managing resources we're managing time we're managing the incident objectives and so forth so to that end each one of those dimensions has skill sets for example in the leadership dimension you're going to have the skill of conflict resolution the skill of listening the skill of communicating um, inspiring behavior, building a team, et cetera. In the, in the emergency operations dimension, you're going to have the ability to organize resources, develop an incident action plan, utilize the incident command system, et cetera, et cetera. So what I like to do is build exercises that mimic real life. So uh, everyone knows about fire ground simulations, but is everybody doing counseling simulations? And that's something we do in our classes, uh, both online and in person around the country, is counseling exercises counseling simulation we, we do a lot of what ifs it's in our books it's in our it's in our online videos and on our online classes and in our in-person classes we get into the whole okay you have an engineer who's got a quote-unquote bad attitude and here's what he's doing and saying 
you know, what do you do? You have a firefighter who's, who's acting out. Uh, what do you do? You have a firefighter who appears to be under the influence. How do you handle it? What kind of conversation do you have? What are the resources you're going to tap into? And they love it. They love it. And I, and I didn't just do it for aspiring officers. I did it for real life. I did it for current officers who were struggling with their crews. For example, uh, this is a hilarious story. One time I had a, a two-company house, and they were about to get a new captain. And they didn't like this individual. They were, in fact, they were ready to frag him before he ever got there. And they told me about it. They said, oh, you better not do this, or we're going to take, you know, you better not do that. He's an idiot and all this stuff. And I said, you know what? I said, let's do a role play where I'm him. I'll pretend to be him, and you all be you. And let's have those conversations now so you can practice them and get it out. So we did, and I acted, I acted like him. And, and for those who've taken my classes, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I like doing crazy stuff, and I'm pretty animated, and, I'm, and I can fake it pretty well. So I was acting just like this guy. And you should have seen the way I was able to trigger the entire crew. I triggered, they would get pissed, they would get sweaty, their faces were turning red, and they were losing it. And it was beautiful because it's better to do it there in a controlled environment during training and have them realize that, oops, this wouldn't have been good in real life. <laughs> we, would have, we would have had a bad workplace. This would have been a bad deal. And then be able to debrief it and give them some school, some tools and skills to do it better in real life. And sure enough, this individual showed up and it went a lot better. And they worked for years together and it went better because they had trained on how to deal with this individual, how to deal with conflict in general, how to have good conversations and how to spot these issues at the incipient phase rather than letting them burn and all of a sudden flash over in the whole firehouse so that's what it's about so it's whether it's that or oral presentations or um leading a drill or doing a fireground simulation uh, as a company chief officer you can make these this officer development stuff it's, it's not just a conversation or an article it's it's hands-on training and it's very effective and it's very engaging and the, the troops love it Another thing we did as a battalion is I would do hands-on battalion drills. So we would go into an occupied apartment building, sometimes commercial buildings. We would check with management, and we'd get the okay verbal um, uh, uh, consent. We would, we would pull smoke machines into occupied apartment buildings, and we would run crews through there and do scenario-based drills. And, I mean, they were on air. They were pulling hose lines. There was smoke um, from smoke machines blowing out of a vacant unit. And the management loved it because they saw the fire department engaging with their with their uh, occupants and looking to make their their apartment building safer. And the crews loved it because it was all realistic. We were laying hose, we were dropping five inch on the ground, we were charging it, and everything was realistic. The the stress, the timing, the radio traffic, all of it. And we were working on getting better at running fires together, and getting better at communication, and getting better at running groups and divisions. The officers were getting better at tactical decision making. And the other, and I would let the officers run it and, and be in command before I'd show up. And it was awesome. And they loved it. And what's crazy is a lot of battalion chiefs around the country don't do that. They just kind of wait for the train division to spoon feed them. They're like, oh, here's the mandatory training for this month. You know, we have to do this or that. And it's, it's not. Today's, today's fire department needs to have engaged battalion chiefs who are doing engaging, fun, dynamic, hands-on training. That's the only way you, the department's going to thrive, let alone survive. 
It's funny you, you said that uh, you know the, the the company officers will sit around. They won't engage their people. They won't they won't get into these these drills. They just as soon let the training center put out their drill of the month or whatever. And the best part about it is once the drill of the month comes out, then they bitch and complain about how terrible the drill of the month is. And it's like, exactly. dude, then then why don't you write one and send it there, or why don't you just go do your own? Uh, any training's better than than no training. And, and uh, it's it's uh, there was a, there's a quote out there, but I don't remember who said it. There's two things that, that uh, firefighters hate: the way things are and change. And uh, you know, it's it's when you get into this training stuff, it's like guys, get off the couch. I know it's hot outside, but get off the couch. Go show your people something. I don't care if you do it in the engine room. Um, that sparks conversation. That sparks. Hey, you know what? What if we did it this way instead of this way? Would it be better? I don't know. Let's try it out. If it doesn't work, well, at least we know we tried. Um, the the stuff that you pointed out about the assessment centers is dead on. Um, that's good stuff, especially you know with my county right now. The lieutenant's exams getting ready to come up, and it's it's a multiple choice, hundred and some odd question, multiple choice test, and then they go into an assessment center. And uh, a lot of the stuff that you said it, it hits the nail on the head, especially when it comes to management and conflict resolution. I th- I think everybody knows how to give an initial on scene report as an officer, and uh, you know this is what I'm going to do, and then give your supplemental size up report. Everybody feels comfortable with that. It's the other stuff that, that people have a problem with is how do you show sympathy? How do you show empathy? How do you um, show leadership traits? How do you um, make decisions, which is a huge one. You know, a lot of people are afraid to make decisions because um, they think they're going to get in trouble or they're afraid that they're going to make the wrong decision. Um, so the things that you have in your book is I tell people, I said, go out and get the book and read the book. It gives you an idea of what an assessment center is. It gives you an idea of what assessors are looking for. And, uh, it, it kind of sheds some light on what the whole assessment center process is. I, uh, for the last 10 years, I've been holding a class about a month before the test. Uh, it's free and I get, take the first 25 people. They come to, uh, my local volunteer department and, and we sit down and we talk for about four to five hours about assessment centers and then I run them through some uh, tactical scenarios with uh, pictures of buildings and put fire coming out of it and stuff like that but we also talk about the management stuff and discipline and how you handle that as long as it's following into the scope of our policy and procedures I think that that's the stuff that people really need to concentrate on and I'm, I'm glad that there's there's people like you that are out there there's so many training companies that are out there that are talking about hey I'll teach you how to pull a hand line hey I'll teach you how to throw a ladder but it's the other stuff that uh, we kind of lack on that management stuff, that that administrative stuff that doesn't that kind of falls through the cracks, and that's what's going to make or break a fire department. So, talk a little bit about some of the training that you do. I know you go all around the country. It's been kind of stunted lately with the uh, with the coronavirus, but uh, some of the stuff that you're doing now and the stuff that you're doing online. Well, thanks, brother. Um, you know the. the it's interesting. We started to produce um, and develop our online courses uh, over a year ago. We, you know, obviously we had no idea COVID was coming, um, but we realized, you know, that there, there's just a wider audience to reach. We can only be so many t- places in, in, in the year. We travel around the country with our cadre of instructors, but we wanted to make the training more available to more people. And so what we did is we developed two new tracks. We developed the company officer online assessment center course and a battalion chief online assessment center course that follow the book the assessment center book uh, from fire engineering and they follow it follows the curriculum of our of our four-day class and we've we've done a lot of work 
and uh, spent a lot of money getting this done right and creating an interactive experience for the online students. So there's a lot of drop downs, a lot of quizzes. You get evaluated on everything from your size ups to um, your your uh, in baskets to your own self evaluations. So it's interactive. It's there's quizzes. You get scored. You get feedback. A lot of videos. And it goes along with the book. And so we've specialized for the company officer, and we developed an enhanced version for, for chief officers. And um, it's been going nuts. People are getting from all over the country because of COVID. We obviously didn't plan this around COVID because we were doing it over a year ago. But with COVID, the demand has gotten even greater um, for this. And so I would encourage anybody who's listening to go to our website at, at uh, trainfirefighters.com. That's one word, trainfirefighters.com with an S on the end.com and you can find our online stuff. Uh, you can inquire about hosting a class. We're certainly going to be doing a lot more um, hands-on classes coming up later this year and into 2021. And we also developed a 100 simulation. We call it the, the sim lab sets and reps. And so on top of the, of the online courses, there's a second module that we add to both of those. Um, that's nothing but sets and reps of simulation. So we cover 100 different simulations. There's 16 different building and fire types, everything from residential legacy and lightweight all the way through uh, different apartment types, multi occupancies, big boxes, commercials, uh, maydays, and everything, as well as MCIs, hazmats, uh, vegetation, wildland type stuff. And every single scenario has a follow up guide on best practices, everything from, you know, size up to resource allocation to command and how to organize the incident and everything and it's flexible enough for the individuals who it's a, you know to add the element of their agency so whether you're a small department with one station or you're a large la city fire department which we've taught there before um, you can apply this this training format we're also doing a lot of uh, command train the trainer workshops and those are based on the this DVD series from Fire Engineering called Mastering Fire Ground Command Calming the Chaos. And what that is, is a department can host us for five days and they can have uh, up to 18 of their own instructors. At the end of that week, we create an internal cadre of instructors for them on how to teach command and tactics. And it's phenomenal. It's all based on ICS, based on our curriculum, and departments are doing that all over the country. We've got we're backed up now with almost 10 of those workshops, um, each of which, like I said, is a week long that are going to be going on all around the country starting at the end of this year and in the next year. So, again, if anybody's interested in any of this training, uh, we'd love to do it for you. We also do personal coaching with our team of amazing instructors. Um, so just visit us at trainfirefighters.com or email us at info at trainfirefighters.com for information on any of the, any of the stuff I just mentioned. Yeah, and I'll put a link up on uh, my social media once uh, <clears throat> once this uh, airs, and uh, they'll have the links that they can go right to to your website. Um, it's it's funny because you know I tell the story. Uh, my my ambitions when I first came into the fire services is, is at the time all I wanted to do was be a station commander. You know, just be in charge of a station. Um, that's where I wanted to work up to. I never had any desire to be a chief officer. Um, it that that particular part of the job didn't interest me. Of course, I was eighteen years old all i wanted to do is ride backwards on a fire engine and go into fires um but as i moved forward in my career i made captain and uh, i stayed at the captain level for about nine years 
and uh, I took a couple of classes at the, at the uh, National Fire Academy and uh, on on incident command, and I was taking it with with uh, different uh, deputy chiefs and and uh, chiefs and assistant chiefs from all around the country, and uh, from moderate sized departments to uh, to uh, smaller departments, and we were running simulations for uh, you know house fires and building fires and things like that, and and one of the things that struck me was the lack of knowledge and experience of running a fire ground using the NIMS system. And uh, I was floored. And, and I was saying to myself, you know, is this what the American Fire Service is offering as a, for command level uh, uh, or for command commanding fire grounds? Um, we're putting ourselves in a dangerous situation. And uh, I was I was floored. I thought everybody commanded fires and, and knew how to do that. And, and um, so... I kind of hemmed and hauled over for a few weeks and, you know, talking to my wife and she finally gave me the shit or get off the pot moment. It was like, you know, you, can, you got a, a choice. You can uh, complain about it and I'm tired of hearing you complain about it or you can go take the test and try to make the fire service better or at least try to learn as much as you can about this, uh, you know, that command and and. and and the NIM system and things like that. And, and uh, I always tell people I married up. My wife did not. So I, I was very fortunate <laughs> that me, I have... You and me both, brother. <laughs> that I have you a smart wife. So I did. I took the battalion chief's test and I passed. And uh, I really got into this command stuff. I, I, I Even though I'm not going into burning buildings anymore, I've got, you know, my actions and, and the orders that I give can hurt people. And, and I really need to be make sure that I have a firm grasp on what's going on on the fire ground and how to communicate to the people and make sure that my objectives are out there clear. So I started really getting into this command training and our department where I work, we have a, a, a command simulation lab and it's a requirement in order to be, and it's a combination system, a career volunteer, in order to be a certified chief officer, to be able to run command in our County every year, you have to recertify as a chief officer. You get three chances. And then after that, you go into a, re, a remediation type. You're taken off of our IECS list, which means you can't command fires. And uh, you go back in for some remedial training until you uh, get your feet back under you. Um, it's a really good program, and I've kind of taken that, condensed it, and I've taken it on the road. I was fortunate enough to teach it at FDIC last year uh, as a four-hour workshop, and, and uh, I was, you know, blown away that I had like 60 people actually come and want to hear me talk about command. It's very humbling, and uh, knowing that there's people out there that want to learn this stuff too, and uh, I know you've done a lot of videos. I, th I think uh, when you actually were in your battalion car, you've taken a lot of videos, and, and you actually ran through the live fires that were going on, and um, I know a lot of people have, have taken a look at some of those videos. So speaking about command, how are you – before you left, how are you training the next generation of battalion chiefs to come up? And then as you progress forward in your retirement with your company now, how are you training the uh, the firefighters to become chief officers? Well, you know, the first thing I was doing as a battalion chief, um, as a new battalion chief, I, uh, I realized how much my previous training had prepared me for the position. And my first day on the job as a new battalion chief ever by myself in a BC, in a BC buggy, was fourth of july in california and fourth of july in california is a pretty going to be a pretty busy day for any fire department and where i was working um in in the greater sacramento area in the san joaquin valley we had what we call a red flag day which means it was high winds low humidity high heat and 
it was going to be a bad day. And, sur- and sure enough, my first day, I had 14 working fires. And what I realized, which I already knew, but this was a defining moment, was that I, re- I relied heavily on my simulator training that I had done uh, leading up to that moment. I-, I was, you know, just like airline pilots or, uh, or military pilots or NASA, they do simulations. They're required to do simulations. And so I, I really was passionate about that. And so I spearheaded our building the command training center, um, really the first one in California that modeled the Phoenix uh, command training center that they had down there. And it was a great way to bring folks in and do tabletop scenarios, do simulations, and, and do incident reviews. I also, as you mentioned, I started um, – carrying a heads-up display camera on my dash and a dash camera. Now, this is before, you know, the fancy cameras now that are on everybody's motorcycle helmet and everybody's turnout gear. Um, this was a, a little bit more archaic version, but it produced good video, and I was I would use that video as game film. So my crews loved watching videos of their fires. They loved seeing themselves because they're firefighters, right? They loved seeing themselves right. on TV. <laughs> and so they loved watching, and you could take the most – you know, the most rough and tough and tumble crew and wake them up at two in the morning. You said, hey, I got a video of, of your last fire you want to watch. They'd be up in two seconds with a pot of coffee and popcorn ready to go. And it was great. It was just like game film of a football team. And we were able to stop and talk about what we were doing and stop a video and look at the building and fire conditions and ask each other what we're doing and listen to the radio traffic and listen to the in-command post discussions and what I was saying and doing. And it was huge. And so that was developing the next generation. But I also found that a lot of the up-and-coming battalion chiefs started wanting to ride with me. So the, the captains that were on the B2 list would call me up, hey, can I ride along with you? And I'd say, sure. And I would give them the keys, and, and I would sit in the passenger seat, and they'd say, what are you doing? I'd say, well, if you want to ride along, this is how I do ride-alongs. You're driving. And I would, I would let them run the battalion. I'd let them run calls and fires. And the biggest challenge they had, because we don't have a two – we don't have uh, field incident technicians or drivers for our battalion chiefs in my system, even though we're a large department. We certainly could could use them, but, you know, budget and so forth, we just didn't have them. So the, the battalion chiefs in my system had to had what I called a, like a 15-to-1 span of control going to a house fire. They had all these resources to track. They had to drive code 3. They had to look up where they're going on a map. They had to deal with the MDT. They had to talk to dispatch. They had two channels to deal with a command and attack. So, you know, by you, and you're, you're violating all the DMV laws and regulations, by the way. So <laughs> how we didn't stack up more battalion chief vehicles a day was, is, is a miracle. But the, one of the biggest challenges these new battalion chiefs would have, or the aspiring ones, I should say, was as soon as they started driving Code 3, the minute they would talk on the radio, every one of them, they would let their foot off the gas. It was almost involuntary. They would, they would, they would, key the mic to talk on the radio and they let their foot off the gas and we start slowing down and i'd say um we still need to get there or there's a semi coming up behind us if we're on a freeway or something um and it was funny to watch them you know i would i would step out of the rig and i would take a radio and i'd say okay i'm going to dispatch you to this house drive around the block and in that in that drive around the block i'll dispatch you to this house right here for a house fire and they go, okay so then i'd get out and i'd watch them i'd watch them turn on the the the, the right turn signal and turn left. <laughs> I'd watch them get lost in one block because as soon as I dispatch the call and they're trying to drive and talk on the radio and process the information, they would get lost. <laughs> and so, 
you know, it's all about cockpit management for a new battalion chief. And so we worked on that a lot. And we worked on decentralizing your decision-making through the incident command system, create groups and divisions, use your captains to help you run the fires. I'm not saying every captain, I'm not saying every lieutenant, but just one or two of them, Division Alpha, Division Charlie, even just one Division Alpha is doing a bunch of things. It's creating succession planning for that officer. You're decentralizing and trusting that officer. You have to train them first, but you're also helping impact the NIOSH 5. You're, you're causing, you're having better accountability because that, that forward tactical supervisor can see what's really going on and do a lap for you or whatever, go in and out of the building, and, and you're helping with communication because you have face-to-face -face communications through that division soup. You have better risk assessment because they can see things that are happening to the building from different angles and closer than you can as the incident commander. And all of that equals succession planning. So every incident had multiple layers of succession planning in it. And I can't tell you how many fires I pull up and I had a captain already in command. Maybe the second in captain would be in command. And I'd say, you're doing great. I'm here for you, keep it, you got it. They look at me, well, are you sure? I say, yeah, keep it, you're doing great. I'm here if you need me. Okay, cool. So, you know, it, it, it was a huge culture. And, you know, I was very proud that, that I would have a lot of uh, firefighters and engineers who would promote to captain. And as soon as they had the juice and the uh, seniority to come back to our battalion, they would. So I'd have, I'd have some people that went from proby to firefighter to engineer, promote to captain, go out for a couple of years, get the seniority, and then come back to the battalion. Because I was there so long that I was able to see that life cycle. And it was an honor to have them come back. And it was, to me, it was, it was, it was very humbling to have them want to come back and work in that new capacity. So it, it's just a cultural thing. You, and, and the battalion chiefs are in a great spot to do that around the country. And so whether you're, you're coming up as a, as a probie, whether you're a volunteer career department, whether you're a huge metropolitan department, you know, at, at, you have to be your own advocate for knowledge and wisdom but also pass it on to others. And I, I call it the Oreo principle. And that is that, you know, you think of an Oreo cookie and the, 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 the center white filling is you. And on one side, one cookie is the, your mentor. And on the other side, the other cookie is the person you're mentoring. And I tell this even to, even to probing, I said, look, you probably know somebody who wants to be a firefighter, right? Well, yeah. Well, you're mentoring that person. Even though you're on probation, and you've only been around six months, you can still be a mentor to somebody who's maybe a volunteer firefighter who wants to get on or somebody who's thinking about becoming a volunteer firefighter and on and on and on. And so we, we developed this culture. I think it's department wide because Metro is a really dynamic department with a lot of great, great young people coming up and a great leadership team. And they've really perpetuated this need for mentoring at all levels. And it, you just don't have a choice. We just have to do that because of the way the world is. And, and let's not forget not only is our workforce changing, but our mission is changing. I mean, I mean, you know, eight months ago, who would have thought we'd be here with COVID and the civil unrest and everything else that's going on? So, you know, one of the things I mentioned in my keynote at FDIC was it's a new normal redefined daily. And it's still true seven years later. Every single day it can be that day where it's a new normal. All of a sudden we have this thing called COVID. All of a sudden we have civil unrest in a lot of cities in the country. Um, you know, before that, it was it was active shooter. Before that, it was white powder substance. You know, so you just never know what's going to change the trajectory of our industry. So you have to be on the front of this thing, and you got to be good, have good leaders who have initiative. So I'll, I'll close with this. I think that 
think the most important thing a leader can have and that we're looking for in leaders is initiative. And I'm guessing you would agree with this. There's, there, we need to have officers who are out there solving problems, not asking for permission, but out there and engaging and are empowered and have the initiative to take action without being asked. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm sure you're seeing it too. Absolutely. And I, I tell my captains, I said, don't call me up in the battalion phone and tell me what your problem is. Call me up and tell me what the problem is and how you're going to solve it. And am I cool with that? That's all I want to know. And if exactly. I've got something like, hey, hey, I hear what you're saying. And under normal circumstances, that would work. But I got this engine and this truck going out that you didn't know about. But uh, how about if we do this? That's what exactly. I want for my people. And I that and that in my own way is saying I want you to make decisions. Okay. Right. And if the decision yeah. isn't the best decision, okay, we'll move on from there. But that that's how you learn. Um but yeah, I I don't want to hear your problems. I'll, I'll hear your problems, but let me know what you're gonna do about it. Um if you got an issue at the station, fine. Call me up and let me know. Keep me in the loop of what's going on and how you're handling it. You know, that that's the kind of stuff that, that I want to hear. That uh that you guys are making decisions. Everybody, everybody, that's, that's what I've been trying to tell people. I was like, we want you to make decisions. Why? And I asked the question, why do you feel like, like officers aren't making decisions? And the number one answer is, oh, they're afraid they're going to get in trouble. And I always say, okay, who's getting in trouble? Name me one officer that you know that got in trouble for making a decision. And the, and the, the, the second answer is always like, well, you know, that's the second answer. And I was like, no, well, tell you know. me. Well, you yeah, t- tell me, <laughs> and 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 they, and they they can't, and no, and I can't. say, I'm not going to. I mean, unless you make such a da- terrible decision that somebody gets hurt or killed, and it was a truly wrong decision. Other than that, it's nothing we can't recover from. And nine times out of ten, you're within eighty-five to ninety percent of of a solid good decision. Maybe a little tweaking here and there. Um, that's what I want for my people. I want them to, to, to make the decisions and feel comfortable making the call and just call me up and keep me in the loop and, and you know, make sure I'm good with that. And then we move forward. Um, one well, of the things good. that you had, yeah. One of the things that you had mentioned when you had talked about, uh, you know, the ride alongs like we don't have drivers either. We're a pretty large department. Um, we don't have drivers either. So we're running two battalion chiefs on all full assignments. Um, right. so I'm doing everything. My wife hates calling me when I'm in the car because I've got five <laughs> radios that are going on at the same time yeah. and it drives her crazy. But, uh, one of the other things that, that, um, that you talked about, and I talked about a retired Navy SEAL uh, a couple of months ago is that they talk about this decentralized command. And I want to touch on a little bit of that before we wrap up. So people understand what that is. I did a head count of how many people are in my battalion that I'm responsible for, and it ended up being like 74 people. That's how many people I'm responsible for. But then I tell people, when the tones drop on a full assignment, we get on the scene, and I might have 40 people on the scene of this work and fire. Once I set up my divisions and my groups, I'm going to be talking to four to six people, and that's it. Those people are going to be managing the six or seven people that are underneath of them. And that's how we break this fire ground down. That's how we get away from this, these, these top five NIOSH issues. We have that good communication. We have good command. We have good objectives that are being thrown out there. We have you know, the, the, the two-way radio talk that I'm telling you, you're hearing, and, and, and the, uh, the outcome is, is going to be good. So that's what we talk when we talk about this decentralized command. Uh, I, the military calls it decentralized command. We call it using NIMS you know, with our tactical worksheets and things like that. So I'll give you the last word on that and then we'll wrap up. Thank you, brother. So, you know, I, I love that. Cause, you know, you're talking about, you know, obviously um, Jocko Willink in his book, he talks about decentralized command. And I totally, I loved reading that section 
because that's what it's about. It's what ICS was designed for. And unfortunately, people think because it was invented out here in California for large wildfires that that's the only time you should use it is for large incidents. And that's not true. You've got to use them on the smaller stuff. You've got to get good at it at the smaller stuff. And I tell people that, you know, most, most vehicle accidents occur within a small radius around your home, right? They don't happen on the 300-mile road trips. They happen around the daily, go to the grocery store, go pick up the kids kind of stuff. Now, house fires are kind of like that. House fires are those day-in and day-out calls that we go on. And so the logic of saying we don't need ICS on house fires is like saying I don't need to wear my seatbelt when I'm around when I'm close to my house. When I'm when I'm just going to get the kids or going to the grocery store, I don't need to wear my seatbelt. That's how much sense it makes to not use ICS on house fires. It's stupid. And I'm tired of the American Fire Service making excuses while we quote unquote don't need it. When are you going to get good at it? How are you going to? How else are you going to empower your officers and get them comfortable with this system? And it makes the fire run much more safe, effective, and efficient. And you keep those NIOSH five from aligning. Because if you don't use it on that stuff and get good at it, then guess what? When it's a dark and stormy night and you've got an apartment fire with people trapped and you start to use it at 2 in the morning for the first time, you're screwed. And that's the problem. And so it's a bit, but, you know, look at, look at the seatbelts on the rig. Look at using a bathroom. Look at going code 3 to stuff that we know is probably not a working incident most of the time, like, say, um, an alarm sounding. We still do that. Why? Because of the what if. And that's how ICS should be used. But we fail to recognize that ICS is a tremendous succession planning tool. You're building the confidence in your officers. When you say to an officer, hey, I want you to run Division Alpha on a, on a warehouse fire, they're going to go, wow, this, my battalion chief has a lot of trust in me. And they learn. But the cool thing is, is you've trained them on how to do it first. And that's the key, is training your officers, your company officers, on how to utilize ICS, whether they be a division or group supervisor, how, or to be an incident commander where the chief is delayed, which can happen in a big system like you mentioned, right? You, mm -hmm. and, and I know, I know if, if your system's like mine, my second battalion chief wouldn't get there until after the fire was knocked down most of the time. So I would have to use my company officers to be my divisions and group supervisors. And they loved it. And the rate of traffic went down and the accountability went up and they were empowered. And the NAS 5 didn't come in, into alignment for us. And so... But the other thing that people have to remember, which is the topic of this conversation, is it's a succession planning tool. You're building that, that, that confidence. You're building that command presence. You're building initiative into your company officers. And so, and everyone's watching. Everyone's watching. And they're seeing that their bosses are really being empowered. And they love it. And so it, it bodes well on all levels. So. And, and not only is everybody watching with, with the, all these programs that you have, all these apps, you can be running a fire in California and people are listening to you in Australia, believe it or not. So Absolutely. <clears throat> the, not, not only is everybody watching, but everybody's listening. So, Anthony, I want to thank you uh, for coming on the show. It's been a true honor, and you've got so much good information that's out there. And this show is going to air um, in uh, next month. And when, uh, when it comes on, uh, you'll have links to uh, all of your sites as well as to uh, Clarion so people can uh, find this book. And uh, I urge them to uh, purchase the book, um, the latest edition, so uh, they can have a little more of a comfort factor when it comes to, uh, to assessment centers. So, again, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, brother. And uh, it's been an honor. It's a blessing. Um, we feel like truly it's, it's a ministry to help firefighters grow and promote and, and, and grow as officers and departments. 
Um, again, visit us at trainfirefighters.com. We've got a lot of great online officer development stuff out there that's not just not just for the aspiring officer, but for incumbent officers too. So thanks for having me, uh, brother, and um, be safe and God bless. Take care.